You're listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org. Hi, I am Libby and I am in the Westman Islands in Iceland. And today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Then Jesus called the twelve over and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Whatever they do not, wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On the road again, going places that I've never been, seeing things that I may never see again. Wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Like a man of gifts, we go down. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many times I've said something like, I wish kids came with a handbook an instruction book. Now, I know I need to house and feed and educate and nurture and love them, of course, but there's all these things that come up that I have no idea what to do, and it would really be nice to just have the instruction book. There's lots of parenting books, of course, but they all seem to conflict, so you just have to learn on the job, I guess. Similarly, I've often said, wow, they did not teach me that in seminary. I learned theology and preaching and history and pastoral care and all those kinds of things, but frequently there are things that come up in the life of the church and the workings of the church, and I think, wow, would have been nice to know this ahead of time. But again, you learn on the job. Now, my husband, as you may know, Mike, um, is also an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, only he serves uh, the church, the conference, the state of Michigan, as the IT uh, consultant, what IT specialist, uh, sorry about that, IT specialist, um, which means that he works with the district superintendents and all the staff people, and he helps them with all of their computer issues. And so when he became this uh, job, and when he left the local church, he left the local church about 12 years ago, serving as pastor, and uh, started to have this new role of pastor's spouse, because he would then come to worship with me, of course. And um, he had to learn what that meant. And so fortunately for him, however, you can find all kinds of instructions on how to be a clergy spouse on the web. And so recently he shared on his Facebook page a, a list of recommendations for clergy spouses that was put out not that long ago by a United Methodist clergy spouse group in Texas. 
And so here is the list of what a clergy spouse, recommendations for a clergy spouse. Pray with your spouse before church on Sundays and each evening and morning. Encourage your spouse to have an accountability group uh, or friend. Set aside or mark time uh, for a weekly day off and vacation time on your spouse's calendar. Encourage your spouse to find a hobby. Listen to or offer to read through their sermon before Sunday. (laughs) Prepare a healthy, hearty breakfast on Sunday. Look interested when they preach. (laughs) It says, look around, there are not many animated faces. And smile encouragingly. Volunteer in at least one area of the church. It encourages your spouse. Host a Christmas party for the staff. Provide a pot of soup or tamales between Christmas Eve services. Attend some of the staff lunches and staff meetings. And when all else fails, just love them and wear lipstick. (laughs) Now, Mike does many of those things. He volunteers in church. He listens to me read my sermon. He prays for me and encourages me to have an accountability group. Now, you can be the judge on how he reacts to me when I preach. Maybe we could put a camera on that. And how often he smiles at me. And he's usually still in bed when I leave on a Sunday morning, so there's no healthy, hearty breakfast. And to my knowledge, he's never once worn lipstick. So maybe some instructions aren't all that helpful, or some are. (laughs) Today's scripture lesson is about a list of instructions that Jesus gave to his 12 disciples. He's sending them out to do the work of preaching and healing. Now, just a side note, in the Gospel of Luke, there are four different times when Jesus sends people out. In chapter 10, he sends out the 70 in pairs. Uh, Then in 22, he gives words of commission for preparing them for their uh, post-Easter mission. And then, of course, uh, 24, Luke 24, is the great commission of the 11. But neither in today's scripture nor in any of the other three commissions did he give them uh, a preaching class first or a pocket guide for healing. There's no little book of prayers to bring with them. In today's lesson, he sends them out with just three instructions, what they can and cannot take, how to receive hospitality, and to how to respond to rejection. Now, those could maybe use a little bit of uh, context, a little more uh, helping us to understand why exactly those rules. Uh, there's not guidelines that we were given in seminary. Why would Jesus say, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic? Well, it's hard to imagine a road trip without money or a change of clothes or food. But for Jesus giving this instruction to the disciples... This was to be an exercise in trust, for them to learn to depend on God to provide. It was also for them to gain solidarity with the poor, to understand their experience, and also for them to 
get the idea that this was an urgent message. This was an urgent mission. There was no time to pack. They needed to get going. And there were people who needed to hear the good news, and there were people in need of healing, so they needed to just not pack, just go. Now, the second uh, instruction, whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there, is also an interesting one, because why would you want to stay there if you, you know, if you didn't want to stay there, why would you need to stay there? But at that time, hospitality to strangers was very crucial to the mission of the gospel. Um, Jesus' plan depended on hospitality. There weren't just hotels on the side of the road for them to stop in and, and stay in. They relied on people who were also committed to uh, the gospel, and so they would stay in people's houses. And if they, stayed in, if they went to a house and then didn't stay in the house, they risked really offending the host, and that place no longer being a, a home of hospitality, which would then endanger the mission. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving the town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now this message, or this word of instruction that Jesus gives is to help them to not be distracted, to not have anything get in the way of the end goal. Don't let rejection preoccupy you. Now the work of following Jesus, um, responding to his commission, is never easy. It takes sacrifice. We talk about that often in church. Jesus is telling the disciples to rely on God, to trust. And he tells us the same. This isn't anything new, and we talk about it quite often. And when he emphasizes the importance of hospitality uh, and how important that is to the mission, he also tells us the same. Jesus lives a life of hospitality, extending hospitality, receiving hospitality, and throughout the scriptures, we can find ways where we are encouraged to do the same, to extend hospitality, to receive hospitality, and it's something that we as a church certainly work intentionally on as well. But that last one, that's the one that we don't talk about. That's the one that trips us up, the one that seems even unchristian, not to mention hard to do. To shake the dust off implies that one has done all they can do in a situation, and it's time to leave. For those of us who don't like to fail, who struggle with rejection, who have trouble letting go, or don't want to come off like we don't care, this instruction might be the hardest. Plus, it doesn't feel very Christian. It seems to contradict Jesus' other teachings like turn the other cheek. Shake the dust appears to be saying something different than turn the other cheek. Except that when Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. What he's basically saying is ignore them. In his examination of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew, theologian Walter Wink writes this. Why does Jesus reference the right cheek specifically? Jesus lived in a right-handed world where left hands were reserved only for the unclean and unclean tasks. Therefore, we can assume that the person doing the hitting would have used their right hand. Now, the only way to strike someone on the right cheek with your right hand is a backhanded slap. 
Such a blow connotes an insult, not a fist fight, and it was a normal way to reprimand someone over whom you had power. For example, masters to slaves, husbands to wives, Romans to Jews. But to strike your equal in such a manner was socially and legally unacceptable, carrying with it a huge fine. So in both of these teachings, what Jesus is saying with turn the other cheek and shake the dusk is don't let that rejection or that harm um, have power over you. Don't let it inhibit your ability to follow your calling because when you let someone have that much power over you, we know it's not healthy and it makes it difficult to be who God calls us to be. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he isn't calling his disciples to be doormats and he also recognizes that it's not their or our job to force faith onto someone. If they don't like what we're saying, it's not our problem but we are wired to not let it go. We want to fix the situation. And I mean, I admit, this is something I struggle with too. I I found a a blog that talks about how do we move on from a bad situation. And it gives four suggestions that I find helpful. Number one, look back on what happened and ask yourself what you learned. When you look at a situation, if you say, what did I get out of that? What did I learn? What do I know now moving forward? It helps you. It, it, it helps to redeem the situation for you, and it helps you to move forward. And for those of us who don't like to leave things unsettled, this helps us put some reason onto it and learn something about how we can do things differently next time. It helps to settle it. The other, another suggestion is to journal, uh, to write down what you're feeling. To, if you can't talk to someone directly, if it's not good for you to, if it's not wise to, then journal your thoughts. And even journal a letter to them that you don't, don't send, but that expresses how you feel and helps you feel like you have some closure. Forgive to forget is the third one. Forgiveness is a common theme that we see throughout Jesus' ministry and his teaching, but it can be really hard. Remember that forgiveness is not just for the one who has offended, but it's also for the one who's been hurt. When we forgive, we release the wrong and the person who's wronged us, and they no longer have power over us. Not dwelling on it anymore can help us to begin to forget and move forward. And finally, to focus on the future. Shaking the dust off is a very forward-moving action. It prevents us from being stuck. If anger or hurt keeps coming back and you focus on the future instead, you find that it doesn't have, again, as much power. You're leaving it behind. And when we do that, we're being hopeful. If hope is steering us, then it's harder to go backward and get stuck again. So make hope a habit. In his final commission to the disciples, the fourth one uh, in Luke, his last words are, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus asked a lot of his disciples, and he asked a lot of us. And his requests were for their own good and the good of the mission. But he also makes promises. And one central promise The whole purpose of his coming, 
The gift of Emmanuel, God with us, is that promise that Christ is with us. God is present. Jesus taught that. He promised it. And so when we face hardship, when we struggle with trust, when we're not comfortable in a situation and we're hurt and angry and we're unable to shake off the dust, we're not alone. Christ is with us, guiding us, nudging us, encouraging us, helping us to let go. with us until the end of the age. Now, wherever we are on the road, my prayer is that we can find strength in that knowledge, knowing that Christ goes with us, even and especially in those times where we have to just let go and shake the dust off. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org.